And there you go. Cool. All right, so uh, Rob Denuso, am I saying that correctly? You sure are. Okay, pronouncing last name correctly. Yeah. Well, so we're going to, uh, as we move in here, we're working on a story for you about you, you wrote, but for the upcoming magazine. Um, and so wanted to get you in and talk about it. I know you've got a history with Audi much wider than this. The main focus of this story, I'm going to just share a photo quick, is that tease. I'll pull those up later for people who end up watching the video. And why don't we start first by, I see you have a bit of a history. It's beginning with your dad. So can you tell me a little bit about how we get to this, what I just shared, uh, yeah. how, how you started with Audi and how we got there? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember being at the end of high school and, and my father deciding he wants to buy a nice car. He, he had always had you know, American cars, nice cars, but wanted to get something a little bit nicer, certainly something German he had mentioned. So test drove a couple of cars with him and we ended up settling on a, a 2003 A4. And it was my first time driving, uh, I think it was my first time driving a, a, a sedan with four wheel drive. Uh, I, I had a Jeep Cherokee uh, that I was driving around. So obviously compared Same with thing. a uh, 92 <laughs> well, Cherokee, which had yeah. its own positives for sure as a car, um, you know, just, just having that, uh, that feeling of, of getting in that car, I, I still remember it, you know, almost 20 years later now, uh, you know, the, the, the Quattro and how well it handled, uh, and, and certainly just how it felt. And, you know, we're talking about a B6 A4. So this is something where Audi was just really coming into, I think, the mainstream luxury. Obviously, the right. B5s were, were really the first uh, venture into that. But with the B6, I think you started seeing a lot more people around driving them. Uh, at least of the of the A4 platform. Yeah. So when when I got into that, it, it was it was really exciting, and you know he would let me drive it from time to time. Certainly not as often as as I bugged him to to do so, but uh, you know I I always remembered that function. So after I graduated college, when I decided to kind of move on from that Jeep and and get into an Audi myself, I found a uh, a B5 A4 that I really liked. It's actually in a, a really rare color called Pelican Blue. Oh, yeah. uh, that that they made and I, I don't think they even made it past B5. I, I haven't seen it on any other cars other than a B5 A4. Yeah, I, uh, I don't remember the spe spe uh, specifics. I remember like at that time, I think was it a 18T, your car? Yes, yep. Yeah, there was like a, a promo that they did where like there were some Pelican blue ones. There was another yellow color. I don't remember exactly uh, that were right. like, it was like early out exclusive, right? They weren't really selling... Yeah. I guess if you knew people, but they did this limited run of those cars. That's cool that you had one of those. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a really awesome feeling. And, you know, again, that that was also my first manual uh, uh, Audi. So, you know, going from an automatic B6 A4 to a, a manual B5 A4 yeah. definitely upped the fun factor quite a bit more. Because, um, you know, the, those uh, those gearboxes, the the automatic gearboxes back then were weren't certainly the, uh, the the quick shifters that you see now in, yeah. uh, in in Audis and many other brands. So definitely happy to get into that and, uh, and and really enjoyed that. So after I got my first kind of real job after college, which was a couple of years later, you know, I'd always been a fan of convertibles, had had friends that had had them, family members. Um, I ended up buying a B6 S4 convertible. Um, you know, I had, I think, 40,000 miles on it. Uh, I was in... Um, 
uh, what, what was the dolphin gray was the color. So really, yeah. really nice car ended up doing, you know, a, a JHM tune on it, some, uh, some exhaust modifications and, and, and really just enjoyed the car. I own that car from, Oh, let's see. It was an 05 car. I think I bought it in early 07. So I, I, I had it from 07 until two years ago. So I actually had that car for, for Did quite a like while, it? really loved driving it. And again, it, every time I kind of upped the, uh, I, I would say the fun factor of, of the Audis that I had been driving. Right. Uh, th this one, obviously with the V8 and, you know, I, I, I got scared for a long time of the timing chain issues and luckily never, never had them. So how high uh, did you mileage that one up? That one got up to 83,000, yeah. uh, but I was super religious about uh, oil right. changing and, and uh, driving it slowly until the, uh, the car was at proper temperature and, and all of that. So hopefully that helped. And, Certainly, uh, what I've heard is the car is still running strong from from the buyer for me. Uh, so at, at that point, you know, hadn't had any kids yet. My wife and I were together, and and I said this was 2012. At this point, I had been driving a Grand Cherokee uh, as a daily, and I said, listen, I want to get back in another daily Audi. I wasn't daily driving my uh, my S4 convertible. It was down in Virginia, uh, living at the time. So I bought a I bought an A3. Uh, you know, little 2.0 T, uh, pretty fun little hatchback, um, you know, did some modifications to that uh, and, and had that car for a couple of years. Unfortunately, uh, for for my driving experience function, I uh, had to get rid of that and uh, move into a Land Rover just because we were planning our first child at that point. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the evolution to, to that point was definitely uh, a really fun time of driving these cars and, and really enjoyed and was really building the brand and, and actually backtracking a little bit, interestingly enough, for my master's thesis, I went to uh, SUNY Albany up, upstate in New York. Um, I did it on the, uh, the Audi brand and as a marketer on how Audi had adapted between, I really was focusing on the 80s through early 2000s, right. uh, how it was trying to shift um, its, its focus and really start appealing to the younger drivers that might be somewhat turned off by Mercedes uh, and, and some of the... I'd say the legacy feelings of a brand. Uh, again, yeah. great cars, but certainly don't appeal to many younger people as right. as compared with like even more BMW is is definitely aimed at the probably the lower end of the spectrum uh, in terms of age. So it was a very interesting evolution, you know, seeing the uh, the change in leadership of Audi and uh, especially Audi America really trying to go after that younger generation. So I had been feeling that all throughout the time as uh, as an owner myself. And it was a really awesome time to be to be driving these cars around. You know, you got a lot of aftermarket support coming around. You know, I'm I'm a big JHM fan, uh, especially for my V6 days. Uh, so a, a lot of really great support for the platforms that were coming out to to do some special things afterward, uh, to to make them even a little bit more fun. So then after that, this is kind of where I I, I made the decision like, hey, I want to get into something fun. Uh, so I bought a Misano Red B7 RS4, which was actually in uh, in the nice. magazine a few years back as a reader's ride. And this is how I met you, George, and Bill as well. Uh, was it 18? I think was the year. It must have been 2018 um, down at uh, down at Waterfest. Yeah. Um, you know, we had the uh, the booth there. Brought some older cars. Brought some newer cars. Right. And I really loved that car. You know, just driving it around. Car. I drove it from sixty-five thousand miles all the way up to close to ninety thousand miles. Um, so, really enjoyed that. Drove it probably ten months of the year, other than like major snowstorms and consult situations. Uh, I live in Westchester County, New York, by the way. So certainly get a chance to use Quattro uh, right. quite quite often. Um, 
so yeah, I had the B7 RS4, really loved that. Um, I'd say the only downside of that car, in my opinion, was was the back seat. It was a really small, B7s have really small back seats, especially I'm 6'1". So if I have a kid in one of the seats behind me, you know, they're already cramped. And, and at the time they were only uh, one and three years old. So, yeah. you know, wanted to get into something a, a little bit bigger. Uh, so I actually um, went up to Boston and, and traded in the RS4 for an RS7, uh, nice. which was uh, definitely a step up in performance. Uh, yeah. But, you know, people think I'm crazy when I tell them this, that I actually enjoy driving the, B, the B7 a lot more than the RS7. Um, yeah. You know, because the, the RS7 is an automatic and even with an APR stage one pushing significant horsepower out of that car, it, it the, the car does feel very mechanical and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, or, you know, it, it, sorry, it feels right. very automatic and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but you definitely miss the mechanical nature of a manual transmission and uh, just the way things were, you know, 14 years ago versus the way things right. were made. This was a 16 that I bought. Um, and yeah, so I, I ended up having that until actually a few weeks ago. And then I, I actually got back into a, uh, a B8 S4. I found one oh, did you? annual transmission, black car uh, with the red interior um, and it only had 30,000 miles on it. So although it's an 11 year old car now, yeah, uh, it, it's exactly what it wants. It has a little bit more space. Uh, it's, it's certainly got, you know, with an RS7, I felt a little um, bad driving it in poor road conditions right. uh, just because, I mean, it's got so much power and, I had summer tires on it, which is another thing. I didn't want to be tooling around uh, New York state in the wintertime on, on summer tires if I wasn't right. being very careful. So yeah, that brings me to today. So, you know, in terms of Audis, I'll go back to the auto unions in a moment. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm at the, the B8S4 now, and I, it's just something about every time you jump in the car, whether it's, uh, you know, it's an S model, an A model, or an RS model, um, you definitely just feel connected to the road, especially... I would say the sweet spot for me that the cars that I love the most um, from Audi are probably the 05 to, you know, to B8 era, um, just right. because you, you do get a lot of that mechanical feel, whether it's of the manual transmission, whether it's, you know, the, the sport diff in the B8 or, or a lot of that. Does your car have, um, is your yeah. sport diff car? I, to it me, is. that's yeah. a great driving car, right? Like it is. you can get the manual and it, you kind of get it all, you know, a yeah. little bit of throttle on oversteer. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's fantastic. So, yeah. So, you know, before we jump, you said something that was interesting to me that like um, uh, regarding the generationality, right. Of BMW and Mercedes, Mercedes in particular, right? it's a, it's an older demo. Like Audi actually is the youngest demo in the luxury space. I don't know if you knew that you probably did, but the, with the Makes sense, though. study you did. Yeah. But like, but what's interesting about that, right. Is like you're where you're about to go in the older cars you have now, which are a bit of a departure from an RS7 and a B8S4 <laughs> is, is interesting in as much as there's that classic era of cars, right? Like the late sixties, early seventies that like Mercedes in particular, even BMW isn't quite a player really until the, until the seventies, but Mercedes right. has these amazing, you know, uh, vehicles that they were selling in that period that like, Audi is really still very much on the ropes. In fact, owned by Mercedes at the time, I right. believe. And, yeah. and, and yeah, yeah we'll, and we'll so, talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. But but where I'm going with that is like it's interesting that like part of that part of that generationality is like today, most people when they think classic Audi, they think 80s rad era or quattro. Quattros. Yep. Right. For but sure. it go For there sure. is some history there, it's some really beautiful history, but it's it's hard to find. 
It is. And, you know, just it is a very interesting history how, you know, how auto unions were sold in the United States uh, in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, even, you know, I'll go to a car show with these these classic cars and most people, they see the rings on the, the back. And some people ask me, like, did you just slap that on there? And I said, no, this is actually <laughs> auto union, which is yeah. represented by the four rings. And most people only know that, to your point, from the 80s on, right? There, yeah. There's not that much of a brand history here. And, you know, there, there's definitely reasons for that. Uh, and, uh, you know, they definitely tried to dip their toes in the U.S. market quite a bit. And I think most would call it unsuccessfully. But, you know, very underappreciated car era, I think, for Auto Union and Audi, you know, yeah. given that it was owned by Mercedes and it was sold through Studebaker dealerships and it was uh, all this funky stuff going on. Just a lot of people don't know it. So um, should we share your cars before we, before we, sure. talk? I'd yeah, love yeah, to, yeah. You, you taught me a bit in reading your story about this. So I'd love to, to hear about the early distribution too. But like, so you start with this one, right? That's right. Wh so this, which is is a, this is a 58. Uh, so this car, um, again, having been an Audi fan for 20 years at this point, I bought this car in, uh, in late 2018 uh, on Bring a Trailer, actually. Um, I, I saw this and, you know, I've always loved classic cars. I've never owned one um, before this one. And uh, my family's really into classic cars. My uncles so, are really into them. But re really yeah. quick, th this is a uh, 58 Auto Union 1000. Is yes. a letter? Auto Union 1000 is, is, the, uh, is the model. Yeah. Okay. Model. And, and derived from DKW3 equals six, which, which the name nomenclature in that is that, what was it a three cylinder right two stroke it, it was it was a three cylinder motor that dkw uh which was one of the audi or auto union brands um right. put onto its car um that looked very similar to this one this one's definitely have has more the, the bells and whistles on it than, than the dkw's okay. did uh, but three equals six was their reference to three cylinders e equaling the the output of power of a of a six cylinder at right. that point yeah okay so uh were DKWs? I, I don't even. I know some are in America now, but like, was yeah. DKW sold here, and then Auto Union sold here? You mentioned that goes through Packard. Yeah. Oh, uh, through, yeah, through Studebaker, and sorry, yeah, and it was um, it, it was an interesting, from what I can find, and there are a couple of books written about this, but unfortunately, you know, I also have a '54 Corvette, and trying to look at the history of that car, you could see pretty much every VIN detailed of where it was right. created, and and. The history very well articulated with these cars you, it's kind of like putting a puzzle together not only of the individual cars that i own but of just the models of these cars and, and how they came to be uh, but from the research i could do you know th there were some dkws that were sold in the united states i haven't focused most of my research on dkw itself yeah. uh, but there are some if you look around but dkws were and remain very popular actually in south america um, right some for very unfortunate reasons. Uh, if you can think after the World War II yeah. um, and some people that went to South America. Some but Germans end up there. Exactly. But, but, but at the same time, there's a rich history down there of like to further development, right? They had like the Mondo sure. race car and and, yep. and some others down there that some concepts, et cetera. Um, yeah. That's a whole other rabbit hole, right? <laughs> of like <laughs> that the is South a, American. That is a rabbit hole to go down for sure. Yeah. But, you know, so post-World War II, you know, auto union had been broken up, uh, obviously. And in uh, 1949, it was relaunched. I'm reading a little bit of my notes because I don't, I haven't memorized all this. But it was yeah. relaunched in in 49, but only with the DKW brand. So Auto Union, as many um, uh, listening to this probably know, 
was really big into racing in the 30s, right? Um, yeah. But really kind of disintegrated as World War II broke out in the late 30s and 39. Uh, but in the 30s, they had never produced a consumer vehicle themselves, right? Right. right? Yeah, it, it was the, right, it was the, as you mentioned in your story too, it was the collaborator, it was the General Motors, if you will, right? Like DKW, right. Uh, yep. Wander, uh, Ennis, sorry, not NSU, wasn't part of it at that point. DK, Hork DKW, was the Wander, yeah. Hork, and Audi yep. were yep. were the brands under these. And then they raced as Audi Union with the, That's with right. the, yep. with the rings. The, type, um, but they, the types A through D, yep. Yeah, yeah. And there was even, I don't know if you knew this, there was a, um, a nah, never made it into prototype phase. There were designs made for like a road going, like the V16 mid-engined car. Uh, that they were they were thinking about selling, but that's it never really got very far. I think right. there's like a model car of it now of like what the design would have looked like. Pretty yeah. rad for like when you think about a pre-war. But yeah, all right. So no auto union. I mean, consumer no auto product. union. Uh, and and then after the war in '49, when auto union became an, a thing again, um, it was reestablished in Ingolstadt actually, and it, it became DKW was the only brand that came back from pre-war. Um, so. DKW was between 49 and 57, I believe, was the only part of Auto Union that was producing vehicles, right? Auto Union itself, GmbH, was a, a company again, but they were only producing under the DKW badge. Until 57, when they took the three equals six that you talked about before, and they said, hey, we want to badge Auto Union as a more, I would say, focused on upper class version of a DKW to see if they can go up market. Uh, and that's this car you're seeing here. So this car is, uh, is called a Sonderklasse, which is, uh, you know, obviously a designation to, you know, I, I forget what the exact translation is, but it's, it's uh, I think higher class or, or something along those lines. I'm sure someone listening knows. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it, 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 they had four or five different versions of this car. One was, a, they actually had a cabriolet of this vehicle. They had a four-door, they had a regular coupe, and then they had this, which was called their, their pillarless coupe. Coupa Deluxe, as they called it. Um, you can see that the, the, uh, the sunroof on this, the, the ragtop is actually factory. So it, it came with this massive ragtop on it from the factory. Oh, wow. This was repainted in the 90s when it was in Long Island, New York, um, before it went out to the West Coast. But these are, from all I can see, the original colors. Um, you know, it was the two-tone black and white. Uh, and now I think you have a couple shots of the interior the uh, houndstooth interior in black and white was redone around the same time. Uh, that's the 60. That's the oh, 60 as well. Sorry, yeah. So they're probably a little bit mixed up in, in order here. Yeah, yeah. Let me uh, see if I can find. Is there not one in there? Oh, there's one right there. Up uh, 39, 6-39. Yeah, that's, that's the interior. Oh, you can't see the seats in this one. Um, but yeah, this is the interior of this. Oh, yeah, so here's the houndstooth pattern on this. So this was... Redone, again, I, I don't have any original pictures of this car, but I'm told this was very similar to what it looked like when it rolled off the floor uh, in 57. Interesting. Uh, do you, curious, do you know what the, it was like a, I don't know what that, it was an, something the, holding an anchor. The, so I actually just learned this a few weeks ago. That is the mark of the, of the plant, uh, okay. of, of the, of the, uh, what do they call them in Germany? The the state of Germany in which the okay. plant was located, or, or maybe even be the the the, uh, the coat of arms of the city in which it was built. Okay. It's something like that. I, I'm not sure exactly of what that is. So that's actually what that represents. It's not an auto union logo. It's actually right. a logo of the locale in which the car was built. That's interesting, right? Because so many like Porsche, so much, the Porsche crest is so much of you know Stuttgart. Uh, yep. Uh, coat of arms. 
on it. But yeah, that's interesting. Do you know where this was built? Was this built in Necrosome? Uh, this one, I believe, um, I, I know more about the 60, the SP, which we'll talk about in a moment. I know about more about where that one was built. Yeah. Again, unfortunately, these there was not a, a history given well, with this vehicle. So yeah, yeah, and it's, it's a very, chaotic Very time. difficult I, to piece it together, yeah. Yeah, I, I will say, I mean, I think between the two of us, we've got a fair amount of nerd knowledge here, but like at the end of the day, this is such a chaotic time after the war. Like Audi Union... When, when, when Germany falls after World War II and the, the Iron Curtain in particular drops into place, all of the auto union and out, or like assets are behind the Iron Curtain. And so That's right. yep. while BMW and Mercedes and Bavaria are okay, Ingolstadt, as we know it, right, didn't really, didn't exist. And I think there may have been, was it Necrosom? Necrosom is, I think, is where the NSU factory was. So like, like for auto union to get started again in the kind of post-war west germany economy it was such a um it was literally a startup right all of the assets That's right you know the race cars got stuck in a coal mine and i guess you know the, what the russians eventually found them and that's them right to Russia. Yeah. but like but yeah all that stuff was was gone and so it, it, it's interesting to see I, there's not a whole lot i mean i'm sure Audi tradition can tell us everything <laughs> about about this but yeah it's not really out there widely so um yeah yeah anyway. actually so so it, it is the coat of arms of ingolstadt uh, okay. I, I just brought it up on my computer here. Uh, yeah. So it, it's actually, that's how, that's what that represents. So for those, I'm not sure listening. what the anchor is all about, but that the, um, it, the, the Panther uh, or, or whatever that is, I believe that is from the, the, the coat of arms of Ingolstadt. Interesting. Uh, if not Ingolstadt, then wherever it was built, but I, I know more about the other one, which we can talk yeah. about. So yeah. this car remind me this one is a, a shift on the column, no clutch. Manual? That's right. This is, this is called the Saxomat transmission. Um, you know, Mercedes and Volkswagen had similar types of transmissions, um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s. But this one actually uh, does not have a clutch pedal, but it does have a clutch. Um, and it's engaged when you let your foot off the gas, the clutch engages, oh. allowing you to shift. So it's a four speed on the column um, with first gear being back and down, second gear being up, third gear being toward the dash and down, fourth gear being up and then push back and you know, the, the reverse. It, it, it's a very interesting and quirky transmission to learn. So one thing we also haven't talked about with this car, it is a two-stroke motor. So, so you have to uh, mix, right? So you don't have to pre-mix it. I, I guess this was revolutionary at the time because they were marketing it in a lot of the materials that I ended up acquiring that this had something called a DKW mixer in it. So in the gas tank, there was a mixer. So I, I usually put, uh, it's, it's a quart of, of uh, oil. I use uh, Royal Purple Oil right now. Uh, but a quart of that for every 10 gallons of gas um, that, okay. that you put in, and it is a 10 gallon tank. So, you know, you, you see me at a gas station kind of measuring off and obviously trying to find all the gas stations with non-ethanol gases uh, oh, them, yeah. uh, for the carburetors. But uh, so, yeah, you actually have to add the oil first and then put the gas in, which is nice because you don't have to pre-mix it. Um, but the downside is if, if you don't have a perfect amount in your gas can, you kind of have to eyeball it. But Luckily, I've not yet seen uh, any downside to doing it the way I've been doing it for, you know, two and a half years at this point, uh, a little bit longer than that. So, but point being, so it is a two-stroke motor. So the downside and the engineering, I mean, you could see the engineering in these cars, even back in the 50s, they had to install something called a freewheel. Uh, and a freewheeling system is something that ensures the uh, motor still gets lubrication, even when you're cruising down a hill. Uh, for example, because mm -hmm. if you have your foot off the gas, the car is in neutral, essentially. 
Um, so it would not be providing oil into the, uh, through the carburetor into the motor. And because it relies on oil in the gasoline uh, to lubricate the parts, it could starve the, the engine of oil, which is why it has this thing called freewheeling on it. And it's a little lever under the dashboard you have to pull. Uh, I just usually leave it full-time engaged uh, so I don't forget. Uh, but right. this actually allows you to, the, the motor to get proper lubrication as it is cruising down a hill or, or whenever it's driving, uh, you know, w without any gas being applied. Is there is there a gauge for the oil? Like you mentioned, you have to kind there, of there's not no no, no. There's a gauge there, for there's the no gas? tack either. Say. Yeah, there, there's wow. there's no tack either. Which it, it is a two stroke, so you can definitely rev it pretty high, but yeah, you know, it's not an infinite red line. So uh, you're definitely playing with fire. You know, certainly with this car having 44 horsepower you know, going up uh, a big hill or something, uh, especially on a highway, which we have one near me here. Yeah. Uh, it, it can actually be very difficult uh, to get up that hill, huh. uh, especially because if you go to fourth gear, there's not really enough power to maintain speed. Uh, and if you remain in third, the revs are super, super high. So it's definitely something that has worried me before while driving it. But this is part of the quirk of driving an old, somewhat obscure vehicle is you right. kind of learn the ins and outs Hopefully not the hard way, but you certainly learn them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I see it's badge three equals six on the dash. Yep. I guess it yep. was still kind of the motor, more like the that era's equivalent of like, you know, two OT or, you know, like it yeah, was a designated. Yeah, and, and, and that was actually, you know, I, I think they were also trying to appeal to some of the people that were familiar with DKW three equals six in the past, not okay. just completely relaunching the car. Yeah. Uh, but if you compare this side by side, and, and those listening can certainly do this, to just, you know, DKW3 equals six, you'll see the appointments of chrome on the outside and the hubcaps. And, you know, it, it's, they tried to build this much more aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and I think charged quite a bit more than they would have for a three equals six, um, you know, for these sorts of up badging, as, right. as you may call it nowadays. That's a beautiful car. Oh, oh, by the way, I looked up Sonder while we're on here. It's I mean, special. I should probably know that, but I didn't. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, you get this one. From so I get this one. This one I, I bought, as I said, I'm bringing trailer. I bought it out of uh, a museum in LA. Um, uh, what, what's it called? The, the name will come to me. But I bought it from a museum in LA. Not, not the big one. Um, it'll come to me in a moment. But it had had a little bit of work it needed to have done um and so the biggest problem with these cars is not learning to drive them uh, but as as many can assume finding parts for them uh, because they never really sold these and we'll talk about the the selling in a moment but they never really sold a lot of these in the u.s so it's not like the corvette for example if i need a new old stock part for that there's you know 30 or 40 online resources that you can go to and get them to your door in three or four days Right. Now, if, if something goes wrong on these cars, I have my sources in South Africa, Germany, uh, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and I think I, and, and the Netherlands is, is the oh, third one. So I've bought parts for these cars from all over the world. And it's very interesting because, um, you know, especially with COVID having hit and, and restrictions on exporting, uh, it, it got very difficult to find some parts. The, the worst part for this car that to find was the Saxomat clutch, because it is not the same clutch as a four-speed uh, clutch from this era. Uh, and it 
from what I could tell, it's not a shared part number with Mercedes or, or any other no. companies. Was it, was so it I actually had to, I had to find a refurbished one uh, from a guy in Germany and it was not cheap as you can imagine, but huh. you know, it, it's something that we ended up finding and that kind of work is a little bit above my mechanical uh, knowledge. So I, I work with a local shop here, Briarcliff Classic here in uh, Westchester County. And, you know, I was able to find a, a an original shop manual for this car, which I think was the saving grace because, you know, we're, we meaning they were able to reverse engineer how it was set up and a bunch of new cables were needed. So the car wouldn't really shift. It would stay in first and second when I first purchased it. But to have it be a driving car, which I aim for all of my vehicles, uh, it really needed these parts. So it took me the better part of eight months to find all of the parts wow. needed to really get this car back on the road. And then things like new tires. This is the paint that I got it with. Um, it's still pretty decent. Uh, and then just small things like coil packs. Um, I'll have to send you over a picture of the engine too. Uh, a few quirks about this motor. It, the, the engine is about 70 pounds. It's just under a thousand cc's. It sits completely in front of the front axle. Uh, huh. The radiator is behind the engine, interestingly enough. And uh, it's got three coil packs. So it, it's, it's one coil per cylinder on this vehicle. So I've found things like new old stock cylinders or, or coils for the cylinders and just ignition to, to get it running right. Um, single 40, uh, single Solex 40 downdraft carburetor on it as well. So again, these aren't parts that are really shared with other vehicles. So I would say the biggest challenge of this car has been just finding the parts, you know, right. 15, 20 years ago, it probably would have been impossible without, you know, online shopping as it is yeah. now. Uh, so I think it was, it was time for this car to, to make it back out on the road and, and really, because it, it had been in a, it had been in a museum for 10 years. So, it. you know, just, just was, was not running properly. Looks like that was the Malamut. Malamut. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So uh, you got this one on the road. At what point did you did you have this one on the road by the time you're looking at the next one? So I did. Yeah. So this one was pretty much done. And there's you're never really done with these cars because I'm always looking for like the rubbers for the windows uh, are, right. are pretty cracked at this point. So never really done. But it was done to a point where it's, it's drivable. It's relatively reliable uh, at this point. By the way, it gets about 40 miles a gallon. So it really? it's, it's also I only have to fill them up a couple of times a year at most. Um, so I, I had been driving it around and I had been aware of other auto unions and these are actually only the only two models of auto union that were sold in the United States are the okay. 1000 and the 1000 SP. Uh, so I had been aware of the 1000 SP, which is this car. Um, uh, and, and I, I fell in love with the styling of this, but just to give you an idea, the, the 1000, it's hard to tell an exact number on this, but many tens of thousands, I actually, I'm reading a number here that 100,000 units of these were produced worldwide. This is of the black 58. Right. Um, about 100,000 of those were produced worldwide. I don't know how many of those were imported to the US. I'm assuming only a few thousand, but still a relatively easy car to find parts for across, across the water and, uh, and, and really in, in other countries. But the SP, they produce, let me, I'm looking, 6,640 SPs Total, worldwide, worldwide. In, its, in its entire run. Uh, and it was produced from, I think it was 59 through 65. Um, so much rarer car, uh, this was. And I think they produced about 2,000, I'm, I'm looking at the number here, uh, something like 2,000 uh, convertibles and roughly 4,000 coupes. Uh, so it's so one, one of 
4,000 coupes produced worldwide. And I have not been able to find the number of how many were imported to the United States. I know of two others, uh, yeah. one of which is a red convertible that was just actually sold up, uh, I think, in the Pacific Northwest. And there's also another white convertible in South Florida somewhere. Um, but I mean, let's assume there's probably 10 to 20 of them sitting somewhere. I don't know how many of them are operational. Right. But point being, yeah. I, I fell in love with this car when I saw pictures of it. But I didn't think that I'd have the opportunity to ever purchase one just because, again, they don't come up very often. Right. So this was, you know, just as the pandemic was hitting, actually, uh, back in the spring of 2020, uh, this car popped up on Bring a Trailer as well. This one needed quite a bit more work. It had been sitting in uh, dry storage in Pittsburgh for over 10 years. And, and the story on that is uh, it was a, a well-known uh, dealership, an Audi dealership in uh, Pittsburgh had taken this car in on a trade for an A6 back in late 20, uh, late, late 2000, like 2008, 2009 or thereabouts. Right. Uh, so a guy had this car, it was in running condition, but you know, it had a little bit of rust issue. It had certainly a lot of uh, running issues at this point. And, and the guy who owned the dealership um, put it into dry storage and kept it there for 10 years uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, and then they decided to list it on Bring a Trailer. I saw it. And the second I saw it, I said, I don't care what this gets up to. I'm buying it. Um, so luckily enough, I, I, I was the winning bidder on that. Got it a few weeks later and, and really dug into this one. This one, the interior was falling apart. Um, it needed a, a complete overhaul of the motor and transmission. It had quite a bit of bodywork issues. Now, it was all uh, original body. You know, no, uh, no repairs had been done, but, you know, there was gas stains underneath the gas cap. There was, you know, dents here and there. So this one required a lot more work, uh, but, you know, certainly worth it, I think, for, you know, what it turned out to be. So I, I had uh, the interior redone, the motors completely revamped with new old stock parts that I could find. Challenging, the, the, uh, the clutch wasn't as hard on this one. This one's a, a four speed on the column with a, with a uh, clutch pedal. Uh, the toughest part to find on this one, I needed a completely new exhaust system, uh, huh. including everything. It has a, uh, an expansion chamber uh, to muffler uh, to rear exit. I had to find this. This is a reproduction part um, that was made in Germany uh, probably 20 years ago. And I was actually able to find it and, and you know, at, at not a low expense, get it shipped here to the United States. Not. But I mean, the old one was rusted out and it sounded, uh, it sounded like a race car, which was funny for a three cylinder <laughs> motor. Um, cause there was just so many rust holes in, in that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we did paint work, um, completely redid the paint and, and the body, made sure everything was smooth. Um, and, and here it is driving today. So, uh, curious, was it Sewickley Audi? Who... It was. Yeah. Yeah. So that dealership in Pittsburgh has a great history of, of, uh, being, they built the first 20 valve or quattro in the U S the owner had like a whiter quattro that he did a 20 valve swap into. I think they built the second one. I, I remember seeing those at like Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix back in like 89 or sorry, not 89, back in 1999 when the anniversary was happening. They have a great history of like being into the old cars and being weird, like, like yeah. you know, not, not, they're not weird, but into the weird old stuff that's like right, right. pretty nerdy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, where some some dealers will just be like, whatever, at least the latest A4, Q5 or whatever, move it on its way. And and Swickley was this, this dealership in Pittsburgh that really, really dug into um into the brand and into it doesn't surprise me then that they were the ones who had it right that they would take this as yeah. a trade and be into that or that it would sit in 
uh, their warehouse because I heard they had up and they had a flood at one point where they had to get rid of a bunch of uh, the, the the inventory they had, but they had like a bunch of just old old parts storage and you know still probably 80s stuff when you talk yeah. about old cars, right? Not this, <laughs> but um, well probably all right. So maybe if you could. Uh, I'm curious what you know. What's always struck me about these cars is there's a it's there's a period of Audi uh, production that these cars are in, uh, and there are a couple others that are, you know that you can cite. But like this one in particular, very obviously inspired by the design of the Ford Thunderbird. Yeah, the um, '57 Thunderbird for sure. And there's there's actually I think Haggerty wrote about this, uh, and and I think Bring a Trailer did a, a spot about this as well. Um, that. It, it was not a shameful rip like they they admitted like hey we we're, we we want to bring up the design of american cars that have been so successful because yeah. again if you think about it this is auto union they designed this car in 57 and 58 to launch in 59 um they saw the success of these these cars coming up uh right. and, you know coming out of the u.s and obviously the 57 thunderbird is one of the most iconic designed rear ends of all time um and and certainly still recognizable and, and they, I, from all I can read about this, no one ever denied that they were ripping that off. And if you yeah. look at the front, I mean, the front could could definitely be, there's some design cues taken from Aston Martin. There's, uh, right. you know, I, I've gotten a lot of different asks, like, hey, is this, an, is this an, some sort of quirky Aston Martin? Uh, you know, especially with the hood scoop and, and you know, the front grill being what it is. Um, and obviously, you know, Aston Martin's, you know, DBs would, would come out after this, especially, you know, the DB5, which a lot of people mistake in the front end of this for came out right. after this car. Uh, but it, it's, it's very interesting that Auto Union was clearly trying to make a space for itself in the United States and really the North American market. I say North American because this car was sold in Canada new. So everything's in kilometers and uh, it was sold in Ontario, uh, brand new. Um, so I think what really did them in is they were relying on what had been popular in Europe at the time, which were fuel efficient, kind of small motors, um, which, which you see in many European cars uh, of this era and before. Um, and the styling, while very striking, could not make up for that in the United States. Because, I mean, they were competing against, you know, GMs that were really coming out with, with the V8s and Fords right. that were, you know, had been producing V8s for a long time. And when, when you put up next to that a, you know, a three-cylinder motor putting out 54 or 44 horsepower, it's very tough to, to, to justify to a market that is used to, you know, 130 to 180 horsepower engines around this time, at least. Uh, even though these cars only weigh about 2,000 pounds each, just the performance was not there to back up, especially the looks of the SP. Right. Uh, so, so the interesting note is, uh, if I bring up, I'm just looking at my little cheat sheet here on this, um, you know, Auto Union is actually sold uh, to, to, to Daimler. Um, and, and Daimler-Benz in 58, which is when the black car came out, acquired a majority stake in Auto Union. And if you'll remember, Auto Union was only producing DKW at that point. So they, when Daimler was in talks, from what, I can, what I've read, when Auto Union was in talks to sell to Daimler a majority stake, Daimler was the catalyst that said, hey, we want to get these cars over to a new market. Uh, and, and that new market obviously was North America. So and Daimler-Benz at the time was, was not a huge company in the United States either. They actually had, and we talked about Studebaker dealers earlier, right. they actually had to sign an agreement to, to market their cars through Studebaker Packard Corp dealerships um, through 64, I believe it was. 
So even you know Audience some of the specifically or Daimler too because wasn't wasn't Mercedes with uh, Max Hoffman? I'm not sure because I've seen pictures and I can upload them into this drive of yeah. you know you, you have a dealership Studebaker Auto Union Mercedes Benz. Interesting. Um, but I, from what I from what I've read, I'm pretty sure about this that auto unions were only sold through Studebaker Packard dealerships. Uh, maybe at so, that time. Maybe so, right? Like I, I'm another, and I'm at the edge of my knowledge, so I'm really going to try and sound like an expert in this. But like one of the fascinating people to me in American automotive history is Max Hoffman, right? That sure. he's, yeah, he's the guy behind the 56 Speedster. I think he was the behind the Gullwing too, or like, or at least its success in the U.S. And so like. I'm curious if if so many European brands came through him and he's, of course, a patron to like, like culturally too, right? A patron to Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright does his his uh, his Mercedes dealership on Park yeah. Avenue, um, yeah. which I think was really designed as a Jag dealer, which I think Max was also probably behind their early history in the US too. So yeah, it's, I'm curious how, you know, I guess anybody coming into the US, whether it would have been Mercedes or the, here with the Auto Union brand would have been like, looking for distribution and so anybody yeah. packard uh, sorry i keep saying packard um Studebaker having distribution in the u.s and having dealerships and probably looking right. for more product to cluster in they probably hooked up in various ways but um yeah that, that's absolutely correct and you know it, it's 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 a very interesting because um when vw uh, actually purchased auto union from what i've read it, it's around 1964 um and Daimler, from what I'm reading, actually bought their way out of the agreement in 64. Okay. Auto Union was scrapped. When Volkswagen yeah. acquired Auto Union in 64, they, they actually kept, uh, it's interesting, Hork, the, which was the super high end of Auto Union. Right. Um, Daimler-Benz retained the Hork brand. And the rest of the Auto Union brands and Auto Union itself were sold to Volkswagen. I saw that in your story, too. And I'm curious where that where that did did they eventually sell it to audi i don't i i, I didn't look beyond that because i would love to own a hork but i yeah, yeah a few of them and they are crazy high in value right um, but i i'm not sure what what uh, daimler ended up doing with the, the brand after that well i know like audi you know how like mercedes has the uh the mybox stuff right, right. like now it's sort yeah. of more a uh a, a, a package level i guess if you will on the highest end mercedes yeah on the s6 like, yeah Right, and and now Audi has uh, they're doing a, a hork version of the A8 for the Chinese market at least, where yeah. they love big, long, you know, uh, yeah. luxurious cars. But like, um, so I, I I assume then Audi now has rights to that brand. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious how I, that was yeah, news to me too. To I didn't follow up on that. I, I'm I'm honestly I, I stopped my research on them uh, on hork yeah. at that point when I it, I just thought it was an interesting tidbit that you know Volkswagen agreed to buy all of Auto Union. But yeah. Daimler wanted to hold on to Hork. I, I mean, obviously, it aligned with this. You know, I would bet it was a competitive clientele. thing. Like, right, it like been, yeah. Here, here for me in town, it was. Uh, there's a. I was looking at a, a building years ago. We were doing Vortex, and there's a an old minus building, right? And that had like seven bays and like lifts and all this cool stuff. Like I don't know, you know, it, it seemed like a great boondoggle. Yeah. And I looked into it, and it was deed restricted, right? Like it was deed restricted because it had been bought by a garage nearby and the garage didn't want the Midas to be competition in the future. So mm -hmm. they deed restricted it. So they couldn't. And, and I wonder <laughs> if Mercedes wasn't maybe thinking some of the same thing. Like we don't want Hork coming back. We don't want the competition right. in the German luxury market. So like, right. Like they would just, I, I'm curious. The other thing I was going to say the T-Bird the, the reference on the SP 
There are some other cars that if you look, you can't kind of unsee it. I love one of my favorite cars of that era, a little later, I guess, in this is the, the NSU Prince, what yep. it would be the four, right? The NSU TT and TTS. That the TTS in particular, or the TT with its dual round headlights is basically a mini Corvair. Like if you yeah. look at the style, like the, <laughs> it, the proportions are a little different. The size is totally different, but like the detail work, it's totally Corvair, but yeah. I think more elegant than a Corvair. The, I, okay. So I'm curious though with your SP, have you ever had it next to an equivalent era T-Bird that like, or it, it, I think it's much smaller. I've never been seen them next to each other. It's definitely but, smaller than a T-Bird. I mean, it, it, it is a deceptively tiny vehicle. Um, yeah. There is a back seat, as, as you showed in some of the pictures, but I mean, you, you can't fit a, a human being back there. I mean, it's basically just a seat pad on a, on a flat bench. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very small vehicle. I mean, you can't really tell because there's no point of reference on this shot, right. but uh, it, it's quite a small vehicle. I have not had it yet next to a 57 Thunder. It would be an interesting shot. Completely yeah. different look, or maybe not completely different. There's definitely some styling cues on the front end as well, but obviously it's the it's the fins and the tail that, I'll that do I'll it. I'll tell you right. That's the, as I was as we were kind of going going through the photos earlier uh, while you were talking. Like uh, when I look at the thing as a whole, like I'll just go to that shot for people who might be looking at this when we were on the YouTube version. The um, it, it it immediately says to me T bird, but then I start mm -hmm. looking at the details and like okay, the, the the greenhouse is different, and that almost looks more like the the three equals six or the regular 1000 yeah. or, or maybe even like a long 356, but then you get down to the grill or the, you know, here the, the, uh, with the fins or, or the grill itself. And I, when I look at the pieces, I don't see T-Bird as obviously right. Like yeah. it's like the whole thing is like, I get the nod, but like, it's interesting that it's a lot more complex than I, and then I kind of get just, you know, when you start considering the details of it, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it's a really awesome car to look at because it's got, I think, so many cues from like, it's almost like a Frankenstein car, right? Because it has yeah. so many details from others. And, you know, some some people see, and even if you look at back at the 58, a lot of people, when they see that, they think Renault or, or, or something, oh. you know, something else uh, European um, yeah. that, you know, or bug even. I mean, you look at the headlights. I mean, there's, there's right. clearly styling cues from Auto Union because they were not really you know, they produced cars for eight years and these were the two models that they produced and sent to the U.S. market. Right. Um, they, they clearly took a lot of styling cues, but it, it, it wasn't just rebranding of something, especially with the SP. It, it, it is its own standalone vehicle, which is what drew me to it. But it, it's, it's just so many subtleties to it that, that make it cool, like the functioning hood scoop. I mean, that you don't really need when the, the motor is so close to the front grill, uh, you don't necessarily need that fresh air coming in right. the hood scoop, but it is functional. It actually does it? open up into the engine compartment. No, no is um, the radiator behind the engine in that one too? It is. Yeah. So yeah. maybe the scoop is more direct to the radiator. Well, I mean, being built in, in Germany at the time, I mean, the, these cars, I mean, we're not designed for warm weather. I would not take either of these out on a hot day here, uh, okay. you know, just because of their cooling capabilities, but they do have um, fresh air intakes on them, right? So, you know, if you want to have air blowing into the cabin, you know, if the windows are closed, you know, they do suck the air in and there huh. is a heater on both of them as well. Uh, it doesn't really work all that well, but I'm also right. not going to be driving it when it's super cold out. So, it, I mean, it's it's interesting. I'll, I'll have to upload a picture of the engine because, you know, you can see, I, I think a lot of people joke around that Audi over-engineers certain things and probably is not alone in, with its German counterparts in doing so. 
but it's 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 very interesting to see like the idea of coils right i mean and and the ignition system on these cars uh, just so interesting to see and especially having one coil per cylinder is very uncommon i mean a lot of older american cars had a single coil uh, and certainly the old Volkswagens had single coils and, and Porsches had single coils. Why did right. they do one coil per cylinder? I mean, they, they just had a lot of very interesting quirks about them that make them very interesting to sit down and look over and certainly to work on as well. And, and so this one is a column mounted manual, but it has a clutch, right? It does. This one has a clutch pedal. But does it, ha it has the mixer of the 1000. So it you... has the same, it's the same gas tank. Yeah. So it has the same functionality within the, the gas it's 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 the same uh carburetor as well to solex uh, 40 downdraft is it effectively the same chassis just a different body on the same chassis Do you know i have to imagine it is i i haven't dug that deeply um into them i mean happily yeah. i haven't had to really get down both both <laughs> right? of them were rust free which by the way the fact that this is a canadian car and and, and also lived in pittsburgh the fact nah. that it's rust free i mean someone took care of it for a very long time this car has sixty-five thousand kilometers on it so this car was driven. I mean, you know, it's 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 not a uh, a garage car its whole life, which is super crazy. That again, this this thing isn't rusted to bits. You know, again, Canada and and Western Pennsylvania. Well, yeah, uh, Pittsburgh though has great car culture, and there was a lot of like I don't know if it was just the steel industry or whatever, but like there was there was whether it's you know back then with the dealers that were there or today with a Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix, like it's it's certainly got its you know i don't know if you ever have you ever spent time in pittsburgh there's like the just the driving museum it, yeah there's yeah. like the i think it's the frick museum there's like a, a museum there that's got they even like uh had uh some what is the, they were trying to sell stainless steel and so they sent stainless steel to to uh was it ford and if they made several stainless steel like a, there was actually a stainless steel t-bird right like the, like in the museum where like all the bodywork is done in stainless but they were trying to get the automotive companies to think of stainless as an option for right. production because no rust right but like yeah i actually have awesome. with this car came a couple of dash plaques from uh from that uh they call it the vintage, vintage grand prix, grand prix. yeah that's so cool. th this car was a show car for a while um and, and and was definitely brought around so that's great news for me because i mean with both of these although there's a downside to keeping it in dry storage or keeping it in a museum you know, right. both were protected from the elements, uh, which I have to imagine a lot of both of these models over the years have just lost their way to rust. Every now and then, you know, I'm part of the DKW auto union groups on online. You know, you'll see a really rusted out one of these cars come up and it's sadly beyond repair. I mean, like, the, you know, the, the frames are rotted uh, yeah. and, you know, you might be able to salvage a couple parts here and there, but, you know, it, it just makes it, I think, that much more of a challenge to find the, the right parts and, and keep them in, but also makes you appreciate, you know, the, the former owners, um, you know, having taken such good care of these cars. I mean, these, these aren't crazy high dollar value cars. And I think part of that is that a lot of people don't know they exist and auto union as a thing did not persist. Right. I mean, yeah. auto union went away and, and really, I mean, a lot of car enthusiasts that are not Audi enthusiasts don't even know what auto union is, right. They, right. they know the, the ring logo from, from Audi, but they don't know what that represents nor the history uh, behind auto union, which is very interesting. And I'd say you get the next level of, of people knowing about the thirties type A through Ds and you know the, the racing legacy of auto union, but never realizing that auto union actually produced vehicles under that badge for, yeah. for seven or eight years. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a really, it's always a very interesting conversation with people, especially, you know, if you get, you know, a newer Audi fan, you know, guys with R8s 
you know, they're like, is that an Audi? And, you know, it, it opens up a really interesting conversation about, you know, the history of the brand, which, you know, when we were talking about doing this article, I think just a lot of people are not aware of. Um, again, right. I think most people that listen or read very aware of the, the racing legacy of Audi, but probably don't know a lot about, you know, it's, it's time actually selling vehicles under this moniker in the U.S. For sure. Well, so uh, what is that what drew you to, you'd already deep, you know, deep dive into Audi, you'd had several. Is that what drew you to buying these early obscure, you know, models? Because nobody's going to have another one. Yeah, right? you like, know, it's, that's, that's right. I, I, we, I mean, part of it was timing too. You know, we had just bought our house and it had a few garage spaces so I could actually get more vehicles and, right. and work on them here. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of it is always, I, I've always had a love for classic cars. But the one knock against it is oftentimes you'll go to a classic car show and there'll be 10 or 15 or 20 of the exact same model. One of them had air conditioning. One of them had, you know, right. factory radio and one did yeah. not like the very small differences. But what brings up really awesome just recognition and, and just conversation, more importantly, is is something that people haven't seen before. And, you know, being the way that the, the car market is nowadays and pretty much everything selling like crazy at a crazy high values. And, you know, the, the auto auctions being more of a, I'd say a global event than they ever have been. Sure. Uh, we were just in Scottsdale a few weeks ago, actually. And, you right. know, people are still there wearing all the, uh, the, the shirts from, from the auctions. It's just become such a big thing that people are aware now a lot more of these obscure cars than they ever have been in the past. You know, they'll watch them go across and oftentimes with obscurity, you get obscure brands that you people have never heard of. Right. But it's interesting because these are actually the foundations of a current brand that most people are not aware of. So it, it, it's again, it's, it's, it's fun to drive. I think part of the, uh, the fun in it is, is actually that the parts are not readily built. So it's, it's, it's part of, you know, it's almost like building a really, I have two, two boys, five and three. Uh, it's almost like building a, a Lego set for which you found an old <laughs> set of instructions in German and uh, that you have to go all over the world to find, you know, different, specific blocks to be able to finish the to, to finish the build on it so it's part of the fun i would say of this is that you can't just go uh online order all the parts you need and and get them installed it's like you actually have to learn quite a bit of it you have to right. learn who to go to and you have to build relationships with with people many of whom don't speak english so it's just it's overall a very fun time from the the research to the build to the display and the conversations afterward it kind of all comes together into uh, a really interesting hobby. Yeah, interesting. The experience is as much the network and the, the absolutely the, the challenge of it than just calling up the yeah. I, yeah, I get and it. again, it, it baffles my mind that especially the SP with the I mean with the really awesome design that it has just is is not in more people's minds. But again, you're talking about a car that had 6,600 units per, produced in its entirety, you know, over 60 years ago. Um, it, it, I mean, you could start to see why a lot of people just aren't aware of it. So driving down the road, people will just say, what the heck is that? And it's, uh, it's really fun just to, to kind of bring something out that people haven't seen before. Yeah, I bet. Well, so, all right, where would people see, I know we're running out of time and you've been generous enough to give me part of your afternoon here. Um, it is, as you take the cars out much, and if you do, where might they catch you? Either local cars and coffee or shows you'd like to go to or yeah. So uh, there's a Westchester Cars and Coffee um, that I kind of rotate the cars, which one I drive uh, from time to time. Um, that's up here in northern Westchester County, just north of New York City. 
Uh, I'll bring it to some shows, mostly classic shows in the area. Um, I actually, we, we have a place up in the Adirondacks. So you and I were talking, we'll probably bring it up to the auto museum at some point this summer. Um, yeah. So just try to, where I don't want to go is I like driving it. I don't like trailering cars. I'll probably trailer them up to Saratoga because that's yeah. 150 that, miles, 120 miles away. But That one may get moved, by the way. There was a scheduling conflict with okay. uh, any queue. Yeah. So I'll keep, I'll keep you updated on that. But yeah. I typically drive them within a 20 to 25 mile radius of here. Just again, with something breaking and you not just be able to go to the right. corner store and, and pick up a part for it. Yeah. I do get a little bit worried anything uh, beyond that distance. But yeah, you know, Westchester County, New York, I'll, I'll bring them to shows around here. And hopefully I can I can get out to some of the, you know, with COVID, fingers crossed, going away. Right. And more shows coming back in, in a larger capacity. Uh, hopefully I can bring them up trailer wise to uh, some of the, some of the shows in the Northeast. Well, I look forward to seeing them out there, man. Yeah. You're headed to Amelia, right? I am. Yeah, I leave tomorrow awesome. morning. So we're, I'm driving. Howard Hughes in me is like, why don't we drive instead of fly? So like, <laughs> I'm just gonna get in the RS6 and hit the I-95 South. There's I'm worse stopping. things to drive down in an RS6. Just yeah. The only thing I'm worried about, I'm not love to drive, but the miles. Yeah, the miles are what scare the hell out yeah. of me. But like, but yeah. yeah, I'm gonna go visit a friend in Virginia on the way down, and and uh, and it should be an excellent trip. There's they've got Radwood going. They've got. Um, have you ever done Amelia? No, it's something that I've always wanted to do. Yeah. One, it's a great time of year to get away to the South. <laughs> so like there's that, but yeah, it's, it's, a, I find it's like a little bit more intimate and a little more eclectic than like Monterey or some of the others. No, I mean, Haggerty owns that they own yep. what's the one in, in Connecticut as well that they just got the Greenwich Concord. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how the game changes on site because I know they really raised the game for Greenwich. Yeah. I heard, you know, they've, they've integrated. Yeah, actually. So um uh, just funny, quick story. So uh, I, I was selling my Jeep Wrangler that I had a, a few weeks back and I met um, a guy named Will, who's, who's one of the regional VPs at Haggerty. And uh, he came by and he saw, he saw the SP sitting in my garage and he's like, Hey, bring this down to Greenwich. So to your pre previous point, I probably am. I think it's the weekend of June 5th uh, is, is going to be the Greenwich Concours. Okay. So I, I likely will have the, the SP down at, at Greenwich uh, for, cool. for that one. If people well, want to stop by and see it. Hopefully we'll see you there then. I didn't realize yeah. that if that's in June, we'll try and get that on our calendar too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. That was another fun thing too, just trying to get that insured with Haggerty and uh, you know, they were great about it, but you know, they don't have auto is it? listed in there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the database. Yeah. We just, we just think to deal, I think we're finalizing it now between Audi club and Haggerty to try and get more awareness. I, going back to the generation thing, just a call back to the earlier conversation is like, it's it's they have very few Audi owners uh, in their space, largely because very few Audi unions or NSUs or DKWs were sold in period. And really until, you know, the, the cars aren't that robust from like the first C1s and, and, and B1s to yep. like the Urquattro era. Right. And like of the Urquattro era, cars are Quattro driven hard, put away wet, rusted. Um, <laughs> so even clean 4000s are are pretty rare. So Urquattros are about it. There aren't a lot of those. But we're seeing like the Radwood era stuff like that's there are a lot more people up to like, you know, even B5s are starting to come to that front end of that classic situation, yeah, that's right? right. We're, that's crazy we're to like, think, isn't it? Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're getting older. I like, so I'll speak for me. Maybe you're not, but I'm getting old. So like, um, but yeah, that's it's nice to see. And it's nice to see so many people our age getting into the hobby and picking up that's these right. cars from this era and, and showing appreciation for them. And as the values go up. I know a lot of the people who like the deals over years are like, oh, yeah. it's too expensive to own an Urquattro now. No, but like the values make it possible to do the restoration. So I'm not again necessarily right. against it. Right. Well, That's I'd right. love to 
have a ton of cheaper quattros. I'd rather see like the preserve well-preserved ones. So that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it'd be interesting to see. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, uh, you know, more people can, can save these cars, whether they're the quattros that are rusted out, whether they're right. the old auto unions, just, you know, because uh, I think they, they just sit and rust even more, especially if they're in, you know, the, the northern part of the country. And yeah, uh, it's unfortunate because it's a very important piece of Audi's brand history. Uh, that's uh, unfortunately just most people don't get to see very much. Totally. Well, God yeah. love you for, for, for not, for both buying them and getting them on the road and keeping them on yeah. the road. It's, it's, uh, it's great to see. So thanks George. Thank Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Thanks for the time. Take care. Cheers. Bye.